go ahead and dismiss kids in the room to their programs. As they're leaving, I just have to comment that my voice sounds good, really boomy. Yeah? You can figure that out, Matt. A little echoey here. It's great having Ryan here. Ryan uh, and Micah oftentimes would, uh, when I was running the student ministry at Peachtree Press, they would come and run our worship for our summer camps and uh, really enjoy it. I would literally pay Ryan hundreds of dollars. Hundreds of dollars. So it was good. Well, today we're going to focus on two words specifically. And these words are bestow and enough. But before I go any further, do you guys hear an echo? Is there anything we can do to fix that? Because it's... What's that? I just hear echo, and everybody else does too. Okay, good. I'm just going to plow ahead. Here we go. I like to use my hands. There we go. So I said two words we're going to focus on. These words are bestow and enough. I'm preaching this morning because culturally we no longer practice the ancient wedding ritual of bestowing. Specifically, the groom on the day of his marriage bestowing upon his bride the gift of her wedding dress. I don't know when this tradition stopped, but it is safe to say that one too many brides received a dress that was not up to their standards. My sister-in-law, Melissa, as many of you women who attended the women's retreat, she uh, recently got engaged. Uh, She is now uh, looking for her wedding dress, and she she works in the fashion industry. And so there's no chance that she's going to let her fiancé, his name is Fritz, no way she's going to let Fritz bestow upon her her wedding day. About a week or ten days ago, uh, Melissa called Miriam and said, hey, this weekend, right now, I'm going to go wedding shopping, and I really would like you to come out and do that with me. And there was only uh, one obstacle for Miriam, Another obstacle for me was paying for the plane flight to California last minute. That was my obstacle. But for Miriam, it was she was scheduled to preach today. And uh, she was not going to let that get in the way, so she dumped it on me. So you're stuck with me, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, to bestow something is to give or provide, typically in the context of giving a gift, bestowing a gift. Often this gift is undeserved or unmerited. And we see this language used in our Isaiah 61 passage. This is the passage that we've been using kind of as an umbrella for the entire sermon series during Lent. So I'll read just verse 3, which says, To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of of a spirit of despair. Well, with Miriam being gone this weekend, I thought I would bestow upon my kids the gift of ice cream, right? I think Connor had ice cream twice yesterday. 
On Thursday, we stopped uh, at Target on our way home to procure said ice cream. And what I noticed is that it was only $2 a carton. And that's really good value. And so I thought that it made sense to purchase three cartons. It would be irresponsible not to buy three cartons of ice cream. And then when Miriam called Friday and was just checking in, Ellie made a point of letting her know that we had three different flavors of ice cream as she ratted me out to her mom. Well, that's one word, the word bestow, and we'll, we'll work uh, that through the sermon as we go on. Well, the other word that I want us to spend some time with is the word enough. The word enough. This is an adverb. I don't know what an adverb is, but it often describes the degree, <laughs> describes the degree or quantity that satisfies or that is sufficient or necessary for our satisfaction. For example, two cartons of ice cream are not enough ice cream, whereas three cartons is enough ice cream. For a weekend, correct. <laughs> the concept of enough in terms of satisfaction is extremely subjective, whereas a conservative three cartons of ice cream is fine for me, you may need five or six cartons to feel you have enough. That seems a bit much to me, but maybe that's fine for you. It's a subjective concept. And enough does not come with a clear measuring stick or instructions, and there are so many psychological factors that play into our feelings on whether we have or do not have enough. My friend Annie had a dog. Maybe she still does, but I'm not sure. Um, but Annie back then had a dog, specifically a pug, and she needed us to take care of her dog while she went out of town for the weekend, and she gave us just a couple simple instructions for taking care of the dog, but made sure to emphasize one of those instructions. She said that after you get done feeding him, you need to make sure you put the bag of dog food back into the container that has a locking top, right? The little things lock on top of it. And she said the reason why is if you leave the dog food bag out, the dog will get into it, and a pug apparently will literally eat all of the dog food or until they die, whichever comes first, which would be a great thing to test. Um, but apparently that is true. You can look it up on the Google. A food experiment was done by uh, researchers at Stanford, and they had two groups of people. Uh, the first group was given a bowl of soup, and they were told that they could eat as much as they wanted until they determined that they had had enough and were satisfied. So after they got to the end of a bowl, uh, they could ask for more soup to be given to them. And people ate, on average, one bowl. Some of them had a, a bowl and a half, and then they decided that they had had enough. Well, group two was also given a bowl of soup, but with one significant change. This bowl was secretly continued to be filled from underneath the table. And those in group two ate on average double the amount as those who did in group one. Enough is a tremendous word, and it can 
bring tremendous freedom and meaning, but it is extremely countercultural to us. You can think about it in two different ways of going about your lives. And you can actually express this physically with your body right now. And so I want to ask all of us to take either hand, just take one of them. And to begin with, I want you to take your hand and squeeze it into a fist like I'm doing. It's as if you desperately want to protect or preserve and hold on to this item, this thing that it represents in your hand. You're clenching it. You're squeezing it. You do not want to let it go. You can go through life this way with your stuff, with your money. You can live with a clenched fist kind of life where you are always concerned that you don't have enough and you must protect and guard what you do have. I've read that monkeys can be caught by drilling a hole inside of a coconut. Uh, a hole just big enough that that monkey can get their hand inside the coconut. And uh, an object would be placed inside this coconut and that monkey uh, would grab onto it. And they would really want to know what it was, but, but with the clenched fist, they could not get their hand out of the coconut. And so they would then become easy prey for someone to come up and uh, take that monkey in, into captivity. They had no idea what was in their hand, but they just knew that they desperately wanted it. And I think the moral is simple and obvious, that a clenched fist leads to captivity. Or, maybe take your other hand, you can take your other hand and just simply open it up. This is the open hand before God way of life, expressed by saying something like this, God, whatever comes into my life, I'm going to hold on to it loosely. I'll share it, I'll give it to others, and I will trust you. You can go through this way of life, um, or you can go through the, the life of the clenched fist, grasping on desperately to whatever it is that consumes you. The word that's behind this type of life is the word enough, of, as we have already talked about where we say, God, I'll trust that you will bestow upon me enough, that you are the God of enough, that you are the God of abundance, the God of provision. And so our gospel story today is a story of a man who goes from this and transitions to living a life like this. This is Luke chapter 19. It should be on the screen. It's also in your worship bulletin. Verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. I want you to fill in the blank. Zacchaeus was a? A wee little man. Very good for some of you. He was, the scripture goes on and says, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. From just the introduction of this story, we know a lot about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was an expert on money and wealth accumulation. He knew where the money was, and he knew how to get it for himself. We need to remember that Israel here is occupied by the Roman state. 
And rather than the Romans killing off and exiling um, Israelites, Rome instead set up a system of taxation so that they could profit from Israelites' wealth. And this is what Zacchaeus does for a living. He collects taxes from his people. He then skims some off the top for himself and then pushes the money up the chain to Rome. And he wasn't just an ordinary tax collector. You see, right, it says that he was a chief tax collector, which means he was at the top of the pyramid of corruption. And thus he was extremely wealthy and equally despised and hated. He is a man who can be described as having lived with clenched fists and with no discernment or desire for having enough. Well, let's pick the story back up in verse 3. It says, He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. I love it. He wanted to see Jesus. I think that's the desire of our hearts this morning as well. Something about this man, Jesus, was appealing to Zacchaeus. And he was willing to run to a specific spot where he believed he would be able to see Jesus pass by. But you have to understand that in this culture, it was considered undignified for a man of Zacchaeus' wealth and stature to run anywhere. Men in robes, that's what they would been, had, he would have been wearing, you just wouldn't run let alone run in a public forum. So we can discern from this that, that the authority and reputation of Jesus has compelled Zacchaeus to break with cultural norms. This is also when we learn that Zacchaeus is vertically challenged or simply just a short man because he can't see over the crowd. And so he's going to discreetly climb up a tree. And you have to understand that he doesn't want to be seen by people because he's aware of what the, is culturally appropriate and what is not. And so he knows that all the action, like him, everybody else is focused on Jesus. And so he's hoping that he's going to be able to get a glimpse of this rabbi as he passes through. Because he certainly would have been mocked if people would have witnessed him and run or in the tree. Then verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. So we have to understand and believe that this caught everyone off guard, including Zacchaeus. And what I find, one of the things I find remarkable about this passage, these, these details, is, is that Jesus called him by name. Just as he knows your name and he knows my name, as followers of Jesus, we are a known people. And Zacchaeus accepts the invitation to have Jesus to his, to his home, but this is much to the anger of all the people around him. It was not uncommon in these settings for Jesus to anger one group of people uh, at the expense of another, one group of 
is angry at Jesus while the other group is happy with whatever Jesus is doing or teaching. But here, and maybe the only example in all of the Gospels, we have a story where everyone is angry at Jesus and inviting this man, which just proves that everyone hates a tax collector because they are corrupt. And I also want to point out that the structure of this story, I think, is really interesting because there are no details about the actual time that Jesus spends at Zacchaeus' house. We don't know about what they ate, what they talked about, how long Jesus spent there, but we do know that it must have been an intimate and powerful experience in exchange between the two, based upon how the story concludes here. And so picking up in verse 8, it says, But Zacchaeus stood up. So we can assume that this is probably at the end of their meal conversation. And said to the Lord, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody, he's cheated everybody, out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And so as we roll to a close, I, I want to point out a couple observations that I think are obvious um, in, this, in this section. I believe it is safe to discern that Zacchaeus was an insecure man. Insecure because he was a short man. And no man wants to be remembered or throughout history as a wee little man. And so I, I just think it would make sense that he battled with a certain degree of insecurity. No different than we have our own brands of insecurity. But he was still able to find a niche in his life to compensate for these insecurities, as often we do. And his was the accumulation of wealth generation, even if it meant taking advantage of his own people. He had no concept of enough as he compiled enormous wealth. But his clenched fist lifestyle in the end wasn't enough. And this was confirmed when he encountered Jesus. He had become a slave to wealth and material possessions. The Israeli dream wasn't providing for him the meaning in his life that he desired. He was living a clinch fit with clenched fists, and when he dared to look inside of those clenched fists, all he saw was emptiness, an empty life holding on to nothing of substance. This is a remarkable moment because now we are witness to a man opening his hand to Jesus and asking Jesus to be his security and his provider. And he is overwhelmed with this new sense of belonging and purpose for his life. And he naturally wants to make right the wrong that he has done by cheating his people and stealing their money. So he offers to give half of his possessions away and declares that he will repay anyone that he has cheated four times the amount that he had taken from them. John Ortberg has this short comment on behalf of Zacchaeus. 
Uh, in this moment when Zacchaeus realizes that 50% of what I have with God is more than 100% of what I have without God. And so the story concludes with these final words from Jesus. You may notice that Jesus doesn't talk a whole lot in this story. But here is his final words. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. If you were an Israelite, about the greatest phrase that could be used to describe you would be a son of Abraham or a daughter of Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are where Israel started. Zacchaeus is a corrupt tax collector who colludes with Rome. Nobody has called him a son of Abraham for a long time. Maybe they've called him a son of something else, but certainly not a son of Abraham. And he can't believe Jesus calls him this, son of Abraham. What a gracious and amazing person Jesus must have been. What an amazing thing it must be to sit down at the table with Jesus. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. What he means is not that Zacchaeus has bought his way into heaven, because you can't buy your way in. You can't earn your way in. It comes as a gift of bestowed grace. That word salvation is often translated as healing or deliverance. And it means something more than just if you believe the right things, say the right things, that you get to go into the fun zone of delight when you die. It means now for Zacchaeus that the disease of more that has been corroding his soul has been healed. He has now found enough for the first time through, in, and with Jesus. And now he can, for the first time, experience for himself Isaiah's promise. A crown of beauty has been bestowed upon you, Zacchaeus, instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And this promise remains for us, too, if we can open our clenched fists and say, enough with open hands proclaim 50% of what I have with God is more than 100% without God. And there's a parable that goes around in, in AA recovery circles that I, want us, that I want to close with. It goes like this. A guy who's drunk and miserable is walking down the street and meets God. He said, God, I can't stand it anymore. Would you give me sobriety? God says, well, I'll do it, but you'll have to give me all your money. It's a costly gift. The guy says, okay, it's worth it. He has $50 in his wallet and says, here, God, take it all. God says, okay, here's the gift of sobriety. The guy says, oh, that is great. Thank you. But now, you took all my money. How am I going to put gas in my car? God says, oh, you have a car? You didn't tell me that. You have to give me your car, too. 
the guy says, all right, God, here's my car, but now how am I going to get to my job? God says, oh, you have a job? You didn't tell me that. You're going to have to give me your job. The guy says, all right, but then how am I going to take care and pay for my mortgage? God says, mortgage? You have a house? You didn't tell me that. You have to give me your house. The guy says, well, how am I going to take care of my family? God says, here's the deal. You give me your money. You give me your car. You give me your job. You give me your house. And then I will be with you and take care of you. And you can use my money and drive my car and work at my job and live in my house because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and we just get to steward it for a little while. What would it look like for this community of open-hand people to reject the culture of unquenchable appetites for more and together proclaim, we have enough because we have Jesus. We have Jesus who has bestowed upon us grace upon grace. We have Jesus who has bestowed upon us salvation. We have Jesus who has bestowed upon us fullness and wholeness of life. I think this way of life would lead to incredible depth, both individually and as a community. It would give us rich meaning, and it would have a rippling impact throughout our relationships and our communities in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, and it would be a glimpse of the kingdom of God here on earth right now. Would you pray with me? Father, we, with heads bowed, we have two hands out and we have clenched fists. And Lord, this is to confess that oftentimes, Father, we do not live feeling as if we have enough. So we guard, protect, fight for more. We confess we are a people that have appetites that look for longing in so many different places. And as if we have ran after so many different things, we confess that it has never been enough. And so now, Lord, it is the desire of our hearts to open our clenched fists, to open our hands to you, to say symbolically that we want to trust in your provision, that you bestow upon us all that we need, that you provide for us, protect us, and care for us. And then so in doing it allows us to become people of generosity that, who can bestow upon others. And so this is our confession. This is the desire of our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.